0: I like pizza. <laughs> Not all pizza is created equal, but I'm generally willing to accept a rather average slice when it comes to satisfying my hunger. Every man has his limits though, and I discovered mine while in college. See The cafeteria always offered pizza. It wasn't great, but we were college students, and so it was reliably offered and continuously consumed. They were so committed to offering pizza that they wouldn't stop even when the supplies ran low. The results were stomach-turning. I'd turn my gaze to the pans and find pickle and hot dog pizza. Other times when the dough was low, they'd make pizza on hamburger buns. I can hardly think of any insult greater to our appetites. <laughs> I'd just as soon as throw that in the trash as eat it. Um, yes, if I was starving, I would probably eat it. But I wasn't starving. And It definitely wasn't what I was looking for. Now, in Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22, we find Jesus in the situation of a college student. He's hungry, and He's looking for food. And so, um, as we've mentioned before, Jesus and His disciples have gone to the city of Jerusalem at this point, they've, they've gone into the temple, and uh, Jesus has cleansed the temple of the money changers and those uh, selling doves, turned over their tables, all of that, um, because he was dismayed by how they had turned the house of God, which was intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations, into a, a marketplace, a den for robbers and, and thieves. But I mentioned at the end of that um, last sermon that Jesus and His disciples didn't stay in the city. That In fact, they stayed outside of the city because presumably there was no room for them in the city. The city was packed with people visiting uh, for Passover. So here we have Matthew sharing one of those instances in which Jesus is going into the city of Jerusalem with his disciples, and he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree that's kind of far off. They're walking down the road, and he notices this fig tree, and he goes off to see if it's got any figs on it, and he doesn't find any. So you can kind of imagine the disciples almost standing on the road, seeing Jesus, looking at this tree, and then they hear him say, may you never bear fruit again. And according to Matthew's account here, uh, the result was that the tree withered up. Now, this whole sequence kind of seems a little strange to us. It almost seems like Jesus is throwing a bit of a temper tantrum or something like that. Um, and, and what's even stranger is if you go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark 11:13, 13, um, it's noted that he found nothing but leaves... Because it was not the season for figs. So maybe you could have expected, Jesus might have expected to find like a really small, mini fig that wasn't ripe, wasn't really ready to eat, but it wasn't the season for figs. Now that's strange. Because we know that Jesus isn't a dummy. I mean, you don't have to be the Son of God to know when it's not fig season. I mean, just as like, Any of us, we know when it's apple season. Apple season is not April. You don't go looking for for apples on the apple tree in April. And so what this should do is signal to us that we're missing something here. Now, we can anticipate that maybe Jesus was genuinely hungry, but perhaps he used his hunger here as an opportunity to try to demonstrate something else. So what is, he, what is He doing here? He lays a curse upon this tree, saying, may you never bear fruit again. Now this should make us start to think, okay, what's going on in the surrounding verses? Think about what we've just covered. Look at verses 17 through 21 in Matthew. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. Why? because he showed up there and didn't find what he was looking for. Instead of finding a house of prayer, he found a den of robbers. And so we have a continuation of that theme here. There's a connection between the temple and the fig tree. And Mark makes this link especially clear in his record. And as you look at those verses up there, you're going to notice that there are some slight differences here between how Mark relates the events as compared to how Matthew relates the events. Um, Mark says that Jesus cursed the tree on the day that they were going to the temple. And then that the next morning, after they'd gone back home and then they were coming back into Jerusalem, the disciples saw that the tree was um, withered and kind of responded at that moment. Now, sometimes when we see these kind of differences, you know, we've commented on this before, sometimes it can incel, settle us as though like, is this some kind of contradiction or something? That's not the case at all. We have to remember that we're dealing with ancient literature here. And so their style of recording history is different than ours. Mark's priority is to offer a chronological account. What Matthew is intending on doing here is kind of offering like a topical account. So he's dealt with The instance of the temple and now he's dealing with this whole episode with the fig tree and so he's condensed the the events in order to cover them in a topical fashion so i i think we can imagine the events playing out like this where just as it was said jesus went off to this tree he cursed the tree and as he cursed the tree it began to wither that very day as the disciples are standing far off on the road, kind of as Mark is recording here, they didn't really completely see what was happening to the tree until the next day. So what Matthew has basically done here is just drawn us into the moment of the disciples' response, because that's when the whole thing is really encapsulated as Jesus has cursed the tree, and now he kind of responds to what the disciples are saying. But There is something very useful here, I think, in the way that Mark frames it chronologically because it really puts the connection to the temple even more clear because it puts it right in the middle. You'll notice where I put in all caps there in the middle, verses 16 through 19. So you have the initial encounter with the fig tree, temple cleansing, and then they come back and they notice the results um, of what has happened to this fig tree because of the curse that Jesus put upon it. What Jesus is doing here with the fig tree is using it as an illustration, as a symbol of Israel. And if we look through scriptures, we'll find that this is nothing new, that in fact the imagery of the fig tree has been used in the Old Testament. Um, When we go to Hosea, Hosea 9.10. God says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. So early fruit kind of makes you think of Jesus' approach to this fig tree here. But then you see a turn. It says, But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So God is looking for a fruitful fig tree, and yet the people have departed from bearing the kind of fruit that he's seeking. You look at Micah. Again, more figs. It says, uh, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the harbor, vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. And then you go to Jeremiah, and this is the last passage I'll include from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 8.13, where, and this really links up with kind of the curse that Jesus puts upon this tree. We see God putting this curse upon Jerusalem. He says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So what Jesus is doing is bringing this Old Testament imagery and symbolism into the present as it relates to His disciples and to Israel. And so He's usually utilizing this symbol of the tree to kind of point to the fact that God is expecting good fruit. And when that good fruit is not present, He's not happy. Um, and we've seen this already as we've gone through Matthew. In Matthew 7, uh, you'll remember Jesus talking about how a good tree bears good, good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. And then if it doesn't bear the fruit that's uh, desired, it's cut down and thrown into a fire. In Luke 13, um, we have a parable given of a fig tree. And it says, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but, not, but did not find any. And so you have this whole interaction between the owner and uh, the caretaker, and he's like, cut it down immediately. And, uh, and the guy says, wait, 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 give it a little bit more time. But ultimately, in verse 9, it's resolved by the owner. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then, then cut it down. And then, the last passage I'll share, most of you are probably pretty familiar with, is John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, the disciples are witnessing an act that symbolizes Jesus' judgment of the barren branches of Israel. Now, like us, very often I say, now like us, it seems that this was lost loss on the disciples. Because I don't know about you, but when I first read these verses, that's not what immediately comes to mind. And that doesn't seem to be what came to mind uh, in the minds of the disciples. Their focus was really on just the wonder of what Jesus did. They were struck with wonder that the tree withered at the mere word of Jesus. They wanted to know how he did this. And it seems almost like Jesus abandons the original point with the fig tree. But I I think a closer look reveals that the bareness of the fig tree is being set in contrast with the fruitfulness that he's desiring for his disciples. Kind of having a a compare and contrast here. So kind of focusing in on verses 20 through 22, and looking specifically at what Jesus says, starting in verse 21. He responds to them by saying, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to do what he has done, the foundation for being able to do those kind of things is faith. Now this isn't the first time that Jesus has uh, mention this. We see in Matthew 17 20, he tells them, Because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. But the critical question that we need to ask here is faith in what? Faith in what? Or faith in whom? Because faith is not entirely absent from our vocabulary as 21st century Americans, nor is belief. But so often, the culture's notion of faith and belief is really at odds with the notion of biblical faith and belief. When the culture talks about having faith or belief, it really usually amounts to believing in yourself. If you just believe, anything's possible. Um, It usually amounts to just luck boiled in optimism. That's not the faith that Jesus is talking about here. The faith that Jesus calls for his disciples to have is the kind that looks to a power that is beyond themselves and outside of themselves. Because humans have no power to curse trees or move mountains or any of these things. He's calling the disciples to have faith in the power of God. But he's calling them not only to have faith in God's power, but also in God's goodness and wisdom. He's calling them to trust God. And this is really important because it's only this kind of faith, this kind of trust, that invests power in prayer. Because the kind of prayer that has power is that which aligns with the will of the Father. It prays as Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to take you back to John 15. We already picked out those original couple verses where it talks about Jesus as the vine, where the branches, If you don't have fruit, it's going to get cut off. Well, later in the chapter, Jesus brings together this idea of fruit and prayer that I think helps clarify the continuity between the fig tree and what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in Matthew. So we look at John 15, verses 14 through 17. the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So Jesus is telling the disciples, he's telling us that the fruit that he's calling us to bear is the fruit of obedience in response to his command, which can be summed up, really, by loving each other. And if you know the rest of the Gospels, I think Jesus would also indicate here, loving God. Loving God, loving each other. That's the fruit that God desires. But there's something about the nature of obedience. You don't just obey anybody. If your doctor tells you that you should take some kind of particular prescription because it will help with your heart, you'll say, okay, I'll take that. I'll do it. I'll take it every night, even though it's kind of annoying, you know, all of that. You'll listen to him. But if just some homeless guy comes up to you on the street and says, hey, here's some pills. Take them for your heart. You're not, you're, no one's going to take that because you, there's not that trust there. So when we respond in obedience to what someone tells us to do, it indicates that we trust them. If you're at odds with Christ, if you're not living in accordance with His teachings and His commands, then what's clear is that you do not trust Him. You do not believe Him. You believe that somehow He's mistaken. If He's mistaken, then He's not the Son of God. He's not really who He claims to be. Otherwise, you would obey. The faith which conforms the person to Christ's teaching is the same faith that that conforms us to pray in accordance with God's will. It's the same faith that drives us to prayer when those mountains appear before us. I want to show you just one more verse that I think helps make this even more clear. We look at Luke 18. I'm just going to summarize the first few verses here. Many of you have heard about this parable of the unjust judge. Basically, there's this widow who has this case, and she's going to this judge again and again, pleading for justice. And this judge doesn't really care about justice that much. Um, but he ends up getting so annoyed because this woman's so persistent that he ends up giving her justice. So then we get to verse 7, where Jesus is basically bringing God in contrast to this unjust judge. Because the judge is unjust, but God is just. And so he says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, you will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, just to pick out a detail here, the cry for justice is in accordance with God's will. God desires justice for his people. So this, so this kind of prayer aligns with God's will, just as we've said, You know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's also clear here is that there's this interconnection between prayer and faith. That prayer is the manifestation of faith. And that where prayer is absent, where we're not persistently going to the Father with our needs, it's clear that there's an absence of faith. There is no faith to be found. When Jesus invites his disciples to partake in the power of prayer, he is calling them to a life of faith. Faith is characteristic of faithful trees of people who hear God's word and trust and obey. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. What will be found in our branches when Jesus comes to us? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If you follow Christ's, you will confront mountains. You will be met by the reality that most of our neighbors don't seem all that interested in Jesus. You will meet a fork in the road in which a decision must be made, a decision to follow Jesus and do what's unpopular, or a decision to just go along with the crowd. You will face tough financial times. You and those you love will suffer failing health. All of these circumstances can seem insurmountable. They loom over us like high mountains. These are the moments in which we will trust Jesus or we won't trust Jesus. If we won't trust him, If we decide that we're just going to deal with this in our own way, then our lives will end up like empty fruit trees. We will exist, we'll keep living, but without purpose. But if we will trust Him, amazing things will happen. The mountains, will be moved. Not always in the directions we might imagine, but they will be moved if, and here's the key, if we pray. Prayer is the substance of faith. It takes us beyond ourselves to the shores of God's wisdom and power. If there are stone walls against the Gospel in situate, I believe that Christ can tear them down. If there's a cost to obeying Christ and doing what is unpopular, I believe that God will make it more than worth it, both now and for eternity. There is no financial hardship There is no crisis of health that God will fail to work out for our benefit even if we don't always understand it. But this is all conditional. All this only happens if, if, if we bring all of these things to Him in prayer. Jesus spoke a mere word and the tree withered. He calls us to nothing more complicated than that. Prayer is no formula. It is talking with God. It is joining His conversation. It is bringing to the table what is already near to His heart. So here's a good start for you. Stay for prayer today. Just 15 minutes. Maybe you have special circumstances that won't allow it, and we're not judging you for that. We will assume the best. But really, if you believe what Jesus is saying here, if you have faith, Why wouldn't you stay? Let's pray, Father. In these verses we are reminded of the great invitation that You've given to us, of how You have grafted us onto the tree of Israel, how all of us who were once not a people are now made Your people. But Father, we are likewise reminded that we have been joined with a purpose. We've been called your children not so that we could just dilly-dally around, Father, but so that we might bear fruit. So that we might follow after Christ in doing the things that He did. And even as He says, Father, even greater things. Father, Give us this faith which drives us to pray. Help us to trust You, not only Your power, but Your wisdom and goodness, and to seek to align our prayers accordingly, Father. Help us to trust that prayer is not empty, that it is not meaningless. But that instead, Father, is the greatest exertion of power. Not because we are powerful in our own strength, Father, but because you are all-powerful. And you have invited us to call upon you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Cituit Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.